Hello, thanks for listening to the Total Knee Tips and Pearls podcast. This is Adam Rosen, your host. I'm a fellowship-trained orthopedic surgeon who specializes in joint replacement. In these episodes, I'm going to share with you a lot of my tips and tricks and review classic articles and current implant designs. Thanks for tuning in and on with the show. Hello and welcome back. I'm Adam Rosen and you're listening to the Total Knee Tips and Pearls podcast. Today I'm going to talk to you about my preoperative workup, let you know what things I'm thinking about and what things I do for patients to make sure that they're optimized for total knee replacement surgery as this is truly an elective procedure. I do not believe that you can really clear somebody. Somebody with heart disease or diabetes may not be able to be completely 100% cleared, but at least they can be stratified and if they're under-managed, optimized. So for all of my patients, I will get medical clearance. The only time that I do not obtain routine medical clearance is a patient that I'm doing in a staged fashion. They were just seen by their primary recently. They were cleared for the first procedure. Three to four months later, we're doing the second procedure. I repeat labs and EKGs. If they're all the same, I don't routinely send those patients back a second time. But for everybody else, I do get medical clearance. I do get dental clearance for all of my patients, especially if they've not been to the dentist in quite some time. For many patients that you take care of, if they have routine cleanings two, three times a year, it's as easy as getting a letter from their dentist stating that they're seen regularly and they have no active cavities or other severe oral disease. But for many patients, what you may find is they have not been seen by the dentist for years and they have underlying tooth decay all of which could predispose them to an infection. Now, when it comes to other clearances, that's very patient-dependent. So a patient that sees an endocrinologist for uncontrolled diabetes, I make sure that the diabetes is under control and they're seen, evaluated, and followed closely by their endocrinologist. A rheumatoid or other rheumatologic disorder patient that's seen in rheumatology that may be on some disease-modifying agents, I make sure that they're involved And obviously, things like severe kidney disease, severe liver disease, other issues such as cardiovascular diseases, they're all seen by their respective specialties. And I make sure that I have a clear understanding with that doctor as to what we're looking for, a risk of bleeding in somebody with liver disease or a heart disease patient who's on a blood thinner, whether or not we have to bridge that anticoagulation or whether or not they can safely stop it a few days prior, depending on what agent they're on. Now, the next thing is... uh, A difficult thing to discuss with patients, but something I feel is very important is setting some BMI standards. And again, like everything in medicine, this is not 100% cut in stone because there are some variabilities. But my general rule is that I look to have all of my patients have a BMI under 40 and preferably under 35. Uh, And that's become a bigger issue lately as some insurance companies have actually gone to a rule of a BMI under 35, or six months of consecutive weight loss. But I do work with my patients and I educate my patients to make sure that they understand that when they come in at that higher BMI, that it does increase the risks of a number of complications. And I go through all those complications with the patient so they can understand what I'm thinking about and what I'm looking for. Now, let's say you meet somebody whose BMI is 50 and they can lose weight over a period of six months and their BMI is 42 or 43. I believe that that patient has made an effort, and that's where I'll break that rule I have of a BMI of 40. And again, if somebody's BMI is 39, 
I'm looking to get them under. So by giving them a goal and anticipation of a surgical date, if that person gets from a BMI of 39 to 36, again, I will not operate them. Uh, but this way, at least they, along with me, have entered into a pact, which will hopefully benefit their health in the long run. And I find most patients are agreeable to this. It's also important, I believe, to document this because, as I said before, many insurance companies are starting to make it a rule of a BMI of 35 or six months of consecutive weight loss. So it's nice to include that in your history and physical or most recent progress note. Now for tobacco, once again, my hard and fast rule is no tobacco, no tobacco products. Uh, And I explain to the patients what those risks are. Many patients that I take care of are understandable and reasonable, uh, and they will stop. Unfortunately, I do see a number of those six months or a year down the road go back to smoking. Um, But what I do is I really try to get them off the tobacco use prior to surgery. If there's any question, I do do laboratory testing prior. But if a patient goes from smoking, say, a pack a day to two cigarettes, again, as long as the patient is informed of the risks, I believe in that instance, it's reasonable to pursue elective knee replacement surgery. Now for alcohol, again, um, you want to look, and it's also important looking through the chart, someone that's been admitted to the the hospital or emergency room, multiple bouts of uh, excessive alcohol intake, that can be a red flag. Um, If somebody is in AA, uh, I do try to get involved and in touch with their sponsor at the patient's permission, knowing that this can be a stressful time. Uh, But if someone's been having issues in the past with alcohol before, there's always that risk that it may reoccur. Uh, And along with that comes some of the associated malnutrition aspects, uh, as well as patient non-compliance. And if patients are drinking one to two drinks a day, um, that can be reasonable. I just strongly have that discussion with my patients that I want them to be honest with me and with them. We do not keep patients in the hospital very long anymore, but back in the day when patients were in the hospital for three to five days, if they were drinking excessively at home, it was not uncommon to see them go through withdrawal. Now, as far as narcotics use, again, uh, my hard and fast rule is no preoperative narcotics use. If they were placed on it because of their arthritis by their primary, I will make them stop. And I don't always have patients eliminate medicines prior to adding medications. I'm not a pain management doctor, but there is a lot of psychology involved there as well as pain. So if somebody is on high-dose narcotic that they were placed on for their knee arthritis, what I will start to try to do is add in scheduled Tylenol, making sure that we don't exceed the daily limit, adding in scheduled anti-inflammatories. And once that has been performed, then I start to wean off of the narcotic. Um, If somebody is on heavy-duty narcotics um, by a pain management doctor, say for their neck or chronic back pain, it may not be possible to get them off of that completely. But again, I introduce the discussion with the patient I urge them to wean down. I explain all the issues that may occur with regards to pain postoperatively and the effects with anesthesia, and I get in touch with their pain management doctor so that everybody is on the same page. And if we can wean somebody off of 80% of their narcotics prior to surgery, I believe in that instance it's reasonable, but you need to make sure that the patients and the involved doctors that are prescribing these medications are all under the same page. Now, the other important thing is uh, laboratory tests. So if you've been studying for the OIT and boards and other tests like that, you've read through Miller and other things, and you've memorized all of those things, it's really important to get complete, uh, not just a basic metabolic profile, and really look at the albumin, uh, especially because we know that patients that are overweight can still be malnourished. 
And you don't want to run into the problem down the road with a wound complication. And at that point, realize that they were malnourished and had low albumin prior to surgery. You want to make sure that their white count is reasonable, low white blood cell count, higher risk of infection. Uh, If they have underlying hematologic disorders and their white count's out of whack, you want to make sure that you get in touch with the hematologist to make sure that those things are stable and what the associated risk might be. Uh, We all know that of all the diseases, that kidney disease may be one of the diseases that results in the biggest risk of complications. So you want to check somebody's creatinine and renal function prior to surgery, uh, as well as their hemoglobin and hematocrit. I'm always surprised how many times patients are cleared or optimized by their primary with anemia, and it tends to be written off many times as anemia of chronic disease. And it may very well be anemia of chronic disease. However, I do believe it's important to look and ask and make sure that that is the cause. So if a primary doesn't do it and I see somebody that has anemia, I will order and check iron studies and B12. If their B12 is low, you want to replete it. That may bring their hemoglobin up. If their iron levels are low, you want to replete it. That may bring their levels up. If their iron levels are normal uh, and they're still anemic, you want to look for other causes like a GI manifestation or possibly those patients are good candidates for things like Procrit. For my diabetics, I'll get an A1C to make sure that they're stable. And again, I'm aiming for an A1C of less than 7. I will accept between 7 and 8 in a well-followed diabetic patient in endocrinology that they feel is the most optimized. But an A1C of 9, 10, 11, I will explain to the patient how high those risks are, and we will delay surgery until their diabetes is under better control. And I even do routinely check vitamin D. I did a study a while back, and in Southern California, we expected our vitamin D levels to be quite normal or high. And surprisingly, almost 50% were low and deficient, although I do not believe it directly affects the total knee replacement surgery. Uh, There are lots of studies now that show that vitamin D may be associated with other diseases, but more specifically with regards to orthopedics, it does relate to the risk of osteoporosis. So I do check and I will replete if low. Now, for all patients, we also do a nasal swab. That's performed for all patients at our institution undergoing implant surgery. Uh, We did do a study on this, and we looked at the cost feasibility of it. Um, It's interesting that we do not use vancomycin as a routine preoperative antibiotic because our MRSA rates are quite low. And if we did, it may not necessarily be useful in our institution based on our bacteria morphology and infection risk. Uh, But what's interesting is we can catch a high number of patients that are nasal swab positive for MSSA. So if they're positive for MSSA or MRSA, they all get Bactroban ointment preoperatively. And then the MRSA patients do get additional vancomycin in addition to their routine cefazolin. Now you want to ask about specifically, have they ever had a history of venothromboembolism in their leg, in their lung? And if so, how does that affect or what are you going to adjust as far as your prophylaxis following surgery? In some patients with questionable histories, I'll do a preoperative ultrasound uh, just to make sure and determine whether or not they do have an old chronic clot. So this does not change the treatment management after surgery if you're questioning whether or not the ultrasound after surgery was showing a new or old clot. Now, the idea of metal sensitivity is something that should also be discussed with the patient. Uh, There's lots of data out there that shows that we're not really sure, and there's no clear sign that a skin reaction would be the same as an internal reaction. 
I do go over all the different options and implants available uh, with patients, and I try to make an informed decision with them. If there really is a question and a concern, I will send the patients uh, to one of our allergists and do metal testing ahead of time. And it's extremely rare to see any reactivity, but if there is, you need to have a discussion with the patient and look at the particular implants that are available and make a decision as to what would be the best implant for that patient. I do uh, discuss with the patients whether or not they've had issues with anesthesia before. If they have multiple questions, we do set up an anesthesia consult preoperatively, so it's not done just on the day of the operation. But mainly what I'm interested in is any severe history of postoperative nausea and vomiting. Uh, We do routinely give everybody Zofram and Decadron, both of which can reduce postoperative nausea and vomiting. But for patients that do have a major history of nausea and vomiting after anesthesia, I'll add a drug uh, called EMEND, uh, which is a 40 milligram dose, which is an excellent thing if given prior to surgery. Uh, Sometimes we'll even use a scopolamine patch, which can be helpful. Um, That has more side effects, so you have to watch that cautiously postoperatively, especially in the elderly. Now, when you're doing your assessment, you also want to look at their skin uh, and whether or not they have any prior incisions and have a plan as to uh, and explain to the patient where your incisions will be uh, so that you may not create any skin issues with a narrow skin bridge uh, or whether or not you can use an old incision, but you may need to lengthen it proximally or distally to obtain uh, good visualization. The other thing as far as prior incisions uh, goes is whether or not they have retained hardware. You know, what's in there? Uh, Is there a rod? Is there a plate? Are there screws? Is it something that can be done in one setting? Or should you decide to do this in a two-stage fashion where you'll go and remove the hardware on one day and come back a few months later and go in and perform the knee replacement at that time? Because if they have lots of screws from an old tibial plate and you take all of those screws out, do you need to bypass that with a stem? So you have to have those discussions with the patient ahead of time, as well as be prepared with your surgical plan as to what implants you're going to have available on the day of surgery. And then also along those lines with either post-trauma or patients that do come in with severe deformities. This is the severely malaligned varus or valgus knee. If they do have significant bone loss, you have to decide am I going to need an augment? Do I need stemmed implants? Or what's their stability exam like? And do they have gross instability in a certain plane? May you need a constrained implant? Because if you do not have those routinely available in your institution, you want to make sure on the day of your surgery that you have the full armamentarium of options from the least constraint up to the highest constraint. Uh, Even more of an issue if you're dealing with post-trauma uh, or even a periprosthetic fracture, you know, do you need a hinge available? And what type of implants might you need? Talk to your reps and make sure that you plan that out ahead of time. So that pretty much goes through my thinking and my algorithm uh, in the office as far as the preoperative workup. And I really do I have a whole outline that I, I share with my staff and my nurses and my, my fellows do know. So we go through this every single time. We never want to have somebody come in the day of surgery and realize, oh, we didn't realize they were anemic or they have renal insufficiency, or this person's albumin is only two. Um, So going through that algorithm and having some form or some template that you can check box off every single thing to make sure that your patients are coming in for this surgery as optimized as possible, I believe is the best way to make sure that you can minimize the risk of problems and other complications that could arise, especially if they could have been corrected and limited prior to the date of that operation. 
next time, what we're going to be doing is talking more about the total knee replacement. I'm going to start going into everything that I do uh, with a knee that begins, again, the day before. It's a repeat checklist of all the stuff that we've talked about so far, and then we're going to start digging into the deeper details of the approach and all the different bone cuts as far as the balancing and the overall outcome of the procedure and how that's performed. So if you've been listening so far, thank you for joining me. I hope this has been helpful and I'm sure that you're looking forward to the nuts and bolts of the actual procedure that I'm going to cover in the next few episodes on this podcast. And again, thanks for listening. This is the Total Knee Tips and Pearls podcast. I'm Adam Rosen. You've been listening to the Total Knee Tips and Pearls podcast. Make sure that you're subscribed so you'll be notified of future episodes. And please take the time to leave a review. It helps other people like you find the show. Until next time, stay safe.